Welcome to the 100 Entrepreneurs Podcast, created to provide veterans and their family members with information, ideas, and inspiration for starting new businesses. This is Amanda Weathersby for 100 Entrepreneurs Foundation. We talk with entrepreneurs and small business experts to learn more about their industries and their lessons learned in creating and growing new businesses. Thank you for joining us. Today we have with us Donna Cole, a uh, veteran. Thank you, Donna, for your service. And she is also an award-winning journalist and a photographer and a multimedia expert. And so with that, uh, welcome, Donna. Thanks, Amanda. Happy to talk. Oh, great to have you here. Now, I understand that you were once at Walter Reed, and a lot of our participants have had some experience with Walter Reed. So <laughs> was that true? That is true. Many years ago when I was back in the Navy, back in the days of wooden decks on ships, and I laughed because people, people generally think wooden decks on ships. That must have been in the 1800s or the 1700s. We actually had wood decks on ships uh, long ago, wow. including on the U.S. and <laughs> Iowa. I was never stationed on board a ship um, at any rate. So, yes, back in the days of wooden decks on ships, I was in the Navy. And as I was getting out, I did have some medical issues. And they were mm-hmm. treated at both Walter Reed and Bethesda Naval Hospital when at that and so you went from the navy uh, into a variety of things as i understand it can you give us a little bit of information about you started a business as well as became a journalist well so i've always been involved in communications like uh, i mean i i've always liked talking <laughs> i don't know that everybody always likes listening to me but i've always liked talking but so in the Navy, I was involved in naval communications. When I got out of the, or throughout my time in the Navy, I did study towards my degree. And prior to going into the Navy, I had been at Boston University studying uh, towards a, uh, ultimately a journalism degree. But I didn't finish at Boston University. I went into the Navy. I studied while I was in the Navy because anyone that's in the military should take advantage of uh, that free education while you're in. And then thereafter... It's not quite as easy, but there is still uh, assistance through the Veterans Administration for your degree. So to get out of the Navy, continued studying towards my degree, got my degree, and started working as a freelance journalist. And I worked for some military publications, military-related publications around the Washington, D.C. area, and freelancing, uh, submitting articles to whoever would like to buy them, and photos here and there. Uh, I continued this throughout, uh, through, throughout uh, up until now, <laughs> where I'm still working as a member of the media. There have been times where, because of personal health reasons, at least one time, where I uh, decided to take some time away from uh, being a journalist, and mm-hmm. I started Annapolis Creative to offer my uh, expertise in storytelling and photography and public relations services. And I did that for a short period of time until my health got better and WNAB, which is a radio station in Annapolis, said to me, hey, what are you doing? And I said, "Hmm, not much. I've taken some time off. And they said, why don't you come work for us? So I closed down uh, Annapolis Creative. I still keep the website up. I still keep the name, but I don't offer 
the PR service anymore because that would be, uh, you know, a violation. Not a violation. It would be a, 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 a I, I can't do both, do that uh-huh. as a journalist and work as a journalist. It's just not ethically correct. So gotcha. okay. I'm a working journalist today. Great. Again. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So working journalist, and can you tell us all of the kinds of things you're doing as a journalist? What does it involve? So Dub- yeah. So WNAV is a local radio station. It's owned by a man that many have heard of. His name is Pat Sajak. Yes, the game show host. He started in radio, so he keeps this radio station. It's in Annapolis. Our listener areas are Queen Anne's County and Anne Arundel County. Uh, So my job as a journalist is to tell the news, to tell the stories that are happening in Anne Arundel and Queen Anne's counties. I came at radio with this background in print and online journalism and as a photographer, which is kind of weird because, you know, radio is all sound over the airwaves, especially an AM radio station. I sort of carved out a niche for myself as the social media person at WNAV and as the multimedia storyteller. Because in 2019 and 2020 and going forward, there is no such thing as just a newspaper or just a radio station or just a TV station anymore. We're all telling stories on social media too. So that's, in, that's, that's really interesting. In a nutshell, yeah. yeah, that's me in a nutshell and how I carved out this little niche for myself at WNAV. Uh, I do still have some health issues. WNAV has been wonderful about working with the schedule that I can, I can keep. So I set my own hours. Social media, I don't need to, you know, I need to be there when something breaks, and I am, uh, and I can do that from anywhere. I have been in Italy, I have been in Canada when things happen in Annapolis, and I am still on social media telling those stories. Mm. That's great. And so, uh, so tell us about the way that you get and collect the stories, and how do you find them, and well, how like do any you, journalist, yeah. Like any journalist, we have to stay in touch with our community. We have to stay in touch with the people in our community. And we get tips from uh, them. We get press releases, just like everybody else, sent into our newsrooms. And if you are active on, for, for me, social, ever since social came around, I recognize that that was in some ways more important than that AP wire that comes through, then all those press releases come through because you're seeing things here and now. This goes back to um, that airplane crash in New York with Sully, Sully, where he landed it Mm -hmm. on the Hudson River. And that sort of was the the defining moment for Twitter. When that happened, it was all over Twitter. And then that sort of became the defining moment for social media in general becoming – as important or maybe sometimes more important than those press releases, than those contacts calling you out in the, from the community, than, those, uh, than that AP wire. So I'm on social media a lot. I stay engaged with it when I'm out and about, when I'm at home, when I'm at work at WNAV, and I, I see things as they break. And how do you know it's a trusted source? Well, good question. So there's some government agencies out there that will share traffic accidents, uh, shootings as they happen, um, fires as they're going on, 
as far as, and I think you already know this, I've won some awards for my coverage of the poisoning of bald eagles on the Delmarva Peninsula. How did I know those were trusted sources when I started seeing photos pop up of eagles suffering in fields that were dead or dying? You have to contact the agencies that are responsible for investigating those incidents. So you always have your, you always have your point of contact. We are, there are a lot of social media sites out there that are just scanner services. They listen to the scanner and they report what they're hearing on the scanner or they have mm-hmm. a log of what the scanner is sending out. That's not, uh, that's not a professional news journalist thing. Mm-hmm. We have to call. We, have, we still have to make calls. We still have to verify that that pink elephant that was uh, called about on, by someone that is now on the scanner running down the road, did that actually happen? Mm-hmm. We don't want to put out that the, the according to whatever, or according to someone that called into police, a pink elephant was seen running down the road. We're not going to do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, one of the things that you said when you came to talk with 100 entrepreneurs at a luncheon recently, you said that you thought it was really important to have your passions, to be able to work related to your what's the things you're passionate about? Okay. Yeah. So actually it was Bob Nilsson that said that as the introduction for uh, everybody that at that luncheon. And I was so honored to speak to that. Bob Nilsson, as you know, is the founder, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. So he had said that it is important to be passionate about what you do, which is why he does what he does for the veterans. I agreed with that, and that was I led into that with my introduction as well as I started speaking. So I am, you've heard about me in my professional world. In my personal world, I'm an animal lover. I am a wildlife photographer. I was the person that watched Born Free over and over again, uh, that watched all the animal movies as a kid, that loved um, all the books about animals. So there's no question animals have played a significant role in my life. When I became a journalist, I always tried to weave in animal stories, but never, never quite, quite as much as I probably would have liked to when I started at WNAB. I have become known unofficially as the chief animal correspondent for WNAB. So if there's an animal story, if there's an animal story I'm all about it. You have to have passion in what you do. That's my passion. And so you have been looking at the scanners or the photos or Twitter or whatever sources, and you've you've somehow discovered that there were uh, American bald eagles lying in a field. Well, so what happened, yeah, what facilitated all this? And a huge amount of credit goes to a state employee by the name of Candy Thompson, who was a former reporter for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, she was working as the spokesperson for the Natural Resources Police. She no longer is. She's retired. But she, Natural Resources Police, responded to a farm in February 2016 in Federalsburg, Maryland, on the eastern shore, where it was discovered 13 bald eagles were lying in the field. So they were the wow. first agency on site. 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, because it's a federal agency and it's a federally protected bird, is the agency responsible for investigating it. However, it was Maryland Natural Resources Police that was first on the scene, and whoever it was from Maryland Natural Resources Police that was there took a photo of it, and that photo made its way to Kendi Thompson, who recognized that uh, this photo needs to get out to the public, and she went to bat for it. So the, mm-hmm. that photo went out to the public. You know, we all saw it. And that photo went global. 13 bald eagles found dead in a field. It's a big story. Well, yeah. So while that story got a lot of attention globally, and then at some point, six months, four or five months thereafter, a month thereafter, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said humans are responsible. And then mm. a few months after that, they said they're closing the case. They have no leads. So that was not good enough for me. I knew that since humans were responsible, it's possible this could happen again and again and again, and it has. Not only has it happened again and again and again, it's happened for years in Maryland and in Delaware, for years. The deliberate hmm. poisoning of wildlife on the Delaware Peninsula. Um, so my point from the beginning of the story was not finding out who did it, I wanted to know what did it, because if it could happen then, it could happen again. The who did it was a job for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The what did it, that was my job. That's, uh, that's the way I looked at it. And you know, My job as a yeah. journalist is to answer who, what, when, where, why, and how. And once I had answered what did it and got some awards for that, then I started delving into this. So this has been from February 2016 to today, 2019, that I've been working on these stories. And where everyone else just sort of stopped paying attention to it, I haven't. Again, and so, and so what did you learn? What did you learn and how did you learn? How did you go about it? It sounds like you have to do a lot of sleuthing. Oh, a ton of sleuthing. It's been a ton of sleuthing, a ton of interviews, a ton of on-site visits, phone calls, emails. Um, reading past cases with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. My big break after finding out it was carbofuran, and how did I find that out? That was uh, by submitting Freedom of Information Act requests, the FOIAs, they're called, and they have to be submitted to the Fish and Wildlife Service. So the original case of the 13 bald eagles, I submitted a FOIA for that. I found out about another case that happened in Easton, Maryland, with five additional bald eagles that happened in 2017. I submitted a FOIA for that. They both came back that carbofuran, which is a federally banned pesticide, was the culprit, and the eagles were poisoned after eating in Federalsburg, eating a raccoon, and in Easton, eating a fox that had been poisoned. So as far as why was this happening, that was a question I still hadn't answered. And I kept going back to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service with my questions. Is there anyone I can interview? And I never got uh, responses. So somewhere along the line in early spring of 2019, I found a man named Frank Concier, who's a retired U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I found him online, and I discovered that he had written written some documents about these cases, And I found out his phone number, and I gave him a call. He's retired. He's living in Florida, and he gave me uh, several interviews. 
Throughout his time, he spent decades investigating these cases of bald eagle poisonings on the Delmarva Peninsula. And throughout his time, as he told me, most, if not all of them, well, he wouldn't say all, but he said the large majority of these cases were about captive mallards, which are ducks, being held on shooting preserves, which I didn't really understand for a while. But once I started looking into what shooting preserves are, they're called regulated shooting areas now, they are normally, most of them are on farms on, uh, as far as we're on the eastern shore. They're, they're used for hunting, and they have captive game birds that they release for the hunters. Now, those captive mallards in these cases are top of the, top of the list for an e- what an eagle wants to eat. Eagles like to eat fish. They like to eat birds. Love ducks. So they go after these captive mallards. These mallards are costing the people that are running these regulated shooting areas a fair amount of money to buy to begin with. And then they have a fair amount of money coming in from hunters that will ultimately shoot them. And if the hunters come onto the property and they don't have any mallards left because the eagles are eating them off, you can do the math. Mm -hmm. So there's the who, what, when, why, where, and how. I've also mapped all the cases. I've showed that some of these cases have the same property owner on, on more than one site where dead bald eagles have been found. And I've shown that it's not just a problem in Maryland. It's a problem outside where it's not just outside of Maryland in Wisconsin and New York or even globally it's a problem with lions mm-hmm. being killed in Africa and birds and birds of prey in Scotland. Carbofuron is being used to purposely kill wildlife, including purposely killing bald eagles. Hmm. We've lost wow. 30, bald, 30 bald eagles in Maryland since in the past decade, and that's since carbofuron has been banned by the EPA. Hmm. Well, so this obviously no, is a great... Go ahead. I, I might also add, all of these uh-huh. happen during bald eagle nesting season, and it takes two adult birds to bring young eggs and young eaglets uh, to, to, to protect and to sit on those eggs, you need two adult bald eagles. So without one or without both, those eaglets in the nest don't stand a chance. Those eggs in the nest don't stand a chance. So when I say we've lost 30 bald eagles in the last decade in Maryland, the number is probably way higher than that if you count, if you're able to count, which we're not, how many bald eagles were in these nests. Interesting. Yeah. So you have used journalism as a way, um, not just something you're good at, but <laughs> something that you're, you use to write about the things you're passionate about, to somehow change exactly. the world of, on the topics that you're passionate about. Exactly that. And that's not, you know, when I, uh, you're hearing a lot about the bald eagle story because it's, cause I've worked on it for so long, so it's fresh mm-hmm. in my mind and it will continue to be. But other passion, uh, other stories that I'm passionate about, veterans, children, uh, education. So, and this is important to the communities we live in, any of these, wildlife, right, our future, mm-hmm. veterans. These are important stories in our communities. So, yeah, there's the, there was a higher-than-normal adolescent suicide rate in one of our local communities. I worked on that story for many, many months. And so, so when you write a story and you've done the research, 
And it, it actually does impact the community. The story itself impacts the community, correct, in this example? It absolutely does. And I had people, when, uh, the, the unfortunate part of this higher than normal adolescent suicide rate in one of our local communities in Anne Arundel County is when it happens again, is that people turn to me or they turn to what I've written and put on my own website, Annapolis Creative, because there's, there's not been many elders that have covered the story. So it's, it's, you know, it's hard to do this, some of this work, because it gets to your heartstrings, right? These are kids dying. Yeah. These are kids that shouldn't be dying that are dying. And, and when people start calling or contacting or emailing when somebody else has left us, it, it's hard. I'm a mom. Mm. Yeah. You can't just shut yeah. the door. People want answers. Yeah. That's amazing. So I, I try to be there. I try to answer questions. Again, my job as a journalist is to answer who, what, when, why, where, and how. It's not to editorialize. It's not to, uh, it, it's not to give advice to parents that might be calling. It's just to answer who, what, when, why, where, and how. This is what the store, this is what I found out. This is where all the research is. This is what I know. And because of that story, they actually did some research, is that correct, into the community to find out reasons? No, actually, the, what, the, what, brought, what came about from the story and from interviewing people that have been affected by these suicides is that two sociologists had come into this community and had studied this community in depth, interviewing several families. And uh, mm-hmm. so this, this happened right before I had uh, started covering these stories, but I was the first one to, to cover that these two sociologists had come into the community, what they found, uh, and what they're doing to help the community going forward. And that was, one of the, that was one of the things that they said, that they would come back to the community and share with them their research. So as they came back, as one of them came back to the community, I was there to cover the meeting. Now, because of privacy reasons and HIPAA, they cannot call the community what it's called. Yeah. So I had to mm-hmm. be very careful explaining that. And it mm-hmm. was a little bit of a leap for, uh, would have been a leap for some journalists to, go, to say this is the community because they can't name it. But there was yeah. no doubt after so many of these families said to me, we've been interviewed, that yeah. uh, a local clergy member said, yes, they've been here. I got you. Got you. Well, now, on top of wildlife photography, which is it's interesting, we've had quite a few vets who've been interested in becoming professional photographers. And uh, how did you get interested in photography? And well, so what are your I've, outlets? I've held, I've held a camera since I don't know how old I was. I always loved photography uh, uh, from a very young age. I sold a photograph of, uh, to the United Press International at, a very, at I think I was 16. And I just wow. knew photography and journalism was part of my, it's part of my DNA, actually. I grew up in a family with journalists, so it's still there. And we do joke mm-hmm. about it within the family, calling it the journalist gene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 2012, I had a bilateral mastectomy for breast cancer that left several nerves damaged, and I, I live in pain. But as I was recovering, um, I started seeing two blobs 
what I thought were two blobs flying around my backyard. And I'm thinking to myself, again, I had just come out of the hospital. I was on a major amount of painkillers. And I'm like, this is not good. Like, <laughs> we need to get off the, this medicine because this is not good. Well, it turns yeah. out there were two baby barred owls, and they were learning how to fly. And then it turns yeah. out that I had the two adult barred owls actually nesting in the backyard, and they had been nesting in my backyard and in my backyard, constant presence ever since. Except for tw- since 2012, this is now 19, seven years I have lived with two barred owls in my backyard. Uh, so what got me into, I guess, the, the I, I'd already been a photographer, but what got me out of bed and holding my camera again were those two barred owls, mm. and, they're, and they're young. And then what got me focusing on birds of prey were those two barred owls. Uh-huh. So wow. uh, somewhere shortly after, maybe 2015, uh, tw- no, somewhere, somewhere along those lines, I also saw my first bald eagles in the wild. So between my owls and seeing those bald eagles in the wild, I was just all in to, to birds of prey and photographing birds of prey. And I, I, I will, you know, I'll go wherever I need to go to photograph bald eagles, whether it's on the eastern shore or up to Conowingo Dam. When the snowy owls come down from the Arctic, I like to follow them wherever they are and see if I can get photos of them. It's, again, it's, my, it's a passion. And it helped me cope with the pain that I've had from that surgery. And that's a big deal. I think it's a big deal for veterans to recognize whatever it is that helps them cope with the pain that they're having internally or externally, whatever it is they have, that find that thing. And for me, that thing is wildlife photography. And do you have any advice for a person who wants to uh, become a photographer? Pick up a camera. If you don't have a camera, you have it on your phone. Yeah. And, 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 just find that, find, and find that element in photography. Maybe it's not birds, but maybe it's flowers. Maybe it's macro photography. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's telling stories with the photo. There's always something to focus on, and that's what I say. When you focus on something else rather than yourself, it helps mm-hmm. the pain. So literally, with a camera, you're focusing on something else. Great advice. And, and I've seen it with, did you take classes? Can he? Yeah, Sorry? absolutely. There's photography classes. I took them early mm-hmm. on in high school. I don't. I haven't taken a photography class since. It's all self. It's all learned. And I think there mm-hmm. are some people that just have um, an eye towards storytelling or an eye towards photography or an eye towards mathematics. I do not have that. <laughs> There's just some, <laughs> some people that are born with an innate whatever it is skill in things. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So with me, it's storytelling, whether it's the visual image or in words or in the spoken word or in the written word. Um, and I do, you know, host a radio show, so it's good that there's storytelling there, too. And I do love sure. that I've learned this new skill of AM radio <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in my 50s. That's great. Wonderful. You also uh, have, in your PR experience... Developed quite a lot, quite a skill for social media, and you gave me in the past. You gave me an example of how social media can work, and it isn't all about the numbers. Can you give me that? Can you talk about that example with all of us? Yeah. So I think a lot of people there were a lot of people are worried about how many followers or likes they have. That's really not important. You can buy followers. 
It's the quality of those followers. It's the quality of those followers that are retweeting your work or or sharing your work. And the reason why I say that is, yes, I took some time off as a journalist after my, my surgery, my mastectomy, because I was in so much pain and started, you know, helping other organizations out with their PR or social media needs because I had had so much experience with this as a journalist. And uh, one of those organizations was a uh, organization that was building a tiny house on a school campus in 15 days, utilizing 50 middle and high school age kids. 15 days they had to build it start to finish. And 14 of those 15 days, I had media on site reporting the story, telling the story of those kids, of the tiny house, of this organization, and those stories went global. One of, one of the media entities was actually out of England. So um, wow. this was all done through Twitter, through reaching out on Twitter and creating some buzz about it. And this organization didn't have many social media followers. It's not about the number of followers. It's not about the number of likes. It's about the quality of those followers. If you are in a uh, building, you, mm-hmm. you want to follow the people that are in, building, in the building industry. If you're in uh, auto mechanics, you want to follow the people that are in your community that have cars, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in uh, restaurant, restaurants, if you have a restaurant, again, the people in your community that have an appetite, those are the people that you want coming to your business in order to sell your product. So... Sure. With something like the tiny house, yes, I was following other organizations that were into uh, sustainability and the environment and education, but I also was following the media entities, and those were the ones, uh, the local media entities especially, because those are the ones that I wanted to target. Sure. That's great. So it was mostly done through Twitter. It was mostly done through Twitter, yes, exactly right. Yeah. Although, twi- because the kids were an important part of this project. Uh, Instagram, this goes back a few years ago. There's no doubt today I would be using Snapchat more for that project than I was, that I am today, uh, or then, I'm sorry. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because Snapchat is where kids live. But Instagram, I knew that the kids would be on Instagram and would be following and would be, were part of the story. So Instagram also I was using heavily. Wow, that's great. You want to create well, this is, for whatever it is you're selling or doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been really fun and also interesting, and you've provided some great ideas and advice for our participants interested in various topics. So this has been terrific, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Amanda. If anyone has any questions, they can find AnnapolisCreative.com. Oh, great. Okay, thanks. All right, Donna, take care. Talk to you. Talk to you soon. Bye.